first just a moment of privilege before we get started. Um, I want to say two things. One, Regina, that was beautiful. That uh, was, and it is such a blessing to us to have you share that song, and it lifts our heart toward God. Thank you so much. And second, uh, Sandy, you did good. That was a long passage of scripture. <laughs> it was. And uh, it, it's interesting. I hope that you uh, picked up on this. She did not read the entirety of the story about Lazarus. Um, she stopped midway, uh, which is a sermonic ploy in order to get us to thinking uh, particularly about the first part of this passage of scripture. And so with that in mind, I'd like to offer one more prayer in preparation for this sermon today. Would you bow your heads with me? Gracious Lord, giver of all wisdom and grace and knowledge and mercy and life, be with us, send your spirit into our midst. Help us that we might have open ears, even more so, open hearts to what you would say today. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. In all probability, Jesus was somewhere in Samaria. You know that, don't you? Somewhere sharing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, as he always did. This was his way, day in and day out, sharing the kingdom of God on earth as it was in heaven. There he was among those who were outcasts, those that had been set aside as being of no sense of worth, he was there traveling amidst them at a distance from Jerusalem. So much more important to understand for us, he wasn't in Bethany. This should be at the forefront of this passage. This was a huge problem. He wasn't in Bethany. Word came to him about his dear friend Lazarus, who is gravely ill. The messenger who made that one day journey in order to get to where Jesus was, surely knew what had already happened. Jesus knew what had already happened. In fact, he was the one that informed the disciples, finally, that Lazarus was already dead. But I think and suspect that the messenger himself knew as he had perhaps seen Lazarus drawing his last breaths and ran with much haste in order to get this urgent message to Jesus, perhaps in time. And he stood before Jesus and he said to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Boy, that was a, an understatement. He knew it. And Jesus knew it as well. It's interesting the words that he used, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You've realized that in John's writing of the gospel, he's always using dualistic language. He's always setting up some kind of metaphorical thought which catches us all in its grasp, if we allow so. The story is about Lazarus, of course, but the truth is that we too are Lazarus. We are the ones that need to be resurrected. We are the ones whom Jesus loves. Do you have any question about that? I mean, certainly God loved Lazarus through Jesus. Jesus had Lazarus as a friend. But here in the writing of the gospel, 
there is this a secret friend that really is never named. Now, it could have been Lazarus. Some believe that, but some believe that it may have been John himself that he referred to as his beloved disciple. You remember that. It echoes all through John, even up to the very end uh, when he gives the caretaking of his mother Mary to John there at the cross. There is this sense in which John is this precious connection to him. Heart to heart, he is connected with Jesus. Jesus loves him so much. But this is John's telling of the story. Of course, John knows that he's been loved. Everybody is loved by God. Some people can't get that message. They believe that God is in love with those who were in love with him. Oh, that is so far from the truth. Of course, God loves, that lo loves those who love him. But he also loves those that don't love him. He loves all the world. I'm speaking John's language here. God loved all the world. You heard that one before? Sure you have. In fact, I want to suggest to you that God not only loved all the world, he loved all the universe. If they find life on Mars, God loved it before we did. God loves all people. I was in conversation with one person just recently and trying to explain this, I got into the depths of all of the dichotomies of, of theological language and realized I was in over my head, but I was trying to explain how I believe that God wraps his arms around us and pulls us in. God does. He presses us, his hands on our backs and pulls us close to him. This is his very nature. It is the very definition of who God is. Can you escape that? Well, let's take that up, you know. That's the nature of that conversation. How far does God's love go? God is always pulling us in. Even if we are unaware, God is pulling us in. God was pulling Lazarus in. God was pulling the messenger in. God is pulling us in because God loves us through Jesus we are loved we receive this cryptic language Jesus speaks and he says this illness does not lead to death and we think huh, what does that mean I mean come on we know the rest of the story even though Sandy didn't read it we know that Lazarus died we got one on Jesus here you know, Jesus may think that it did not lead to death, but we know that it did lead to death and that Lazarus actually died. But what is Jesus seeing? What is he seeing that we are not seeing? Jesus loved all of them and he stayed two more days before going back to Bethany. Why would this have been the case? Why would he have waited? Even if he knew that Lazarus was already dead, why would he wait? You know that there was this dance going on, this dangerous, dangerous dance with the religious elite in Judea, particularly those that were positioned in power in Jerusalem in the temple. Jesus was always in their midst, but then moving on down the road in order that he not be stoned before his time 
of death. Was Jesus orchestrating all of this? That's a question I'd like to bring up with Jesus when I have the chance to meet him face to face, given his mercy in my life. I have some questions for him. Do you? It looks like in reading through this passage that perhaps he was saying to himself, I am more than willing to go where I am called to go, but there still is a time and place for even my death. Thomas, ever the pragmatist, was ready to die on the front line right then. Now, those of you who were here last week, you would have heard Stephanie as she shared the message and I shared the message in the contemporary worship service about Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Oh, come on. Get an idea of who he was because here Thomas is who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go with him as he goes back to Jerusalem that we may die with him. The disciples, they were okay with the delay, Thomas. Come on, they're okay with the delay. They knew this dangerous dance was not only involving Jesus, but it was involving them as well. Thomas was ready to die with Christ and for Christ. But was he ready to live? That would be another question. That one, not for Jesus. That one for Thomas. Every Sunday we come into this place, into this sanctuary, in order that the Son of God might be glorified. Isn't that why you're here? Look at me here. Aren't you here for the purpose of glorifying God. We are here for that purpose. But the truth is that as we come into this place, we seek the God of divine comfort. Maybe that's why they call it a sanctuary. We want the peacefulness of being in God's presence. We do not want to encounter suffering if we can avoid it. I speak for myself here. I don't like pain. I don't do pain well. I don't do suffering well. In fact, I don't do my own suffering well. And I don't do other people's suffering very well. I become this emotional blubbering soul when bad things start to happen to other people. I seek divine comfort. During our singing of the Gloria Patra and also during the doxology, we turn our eyes toward this altar. And if you noticed even this morning, it's a part of our tradition to look up at the cross, uh, the beauty of this cross. Isn't it a gorgeous cross with those colors so vibrant and alive? But do you know the darkness that is a part of this cross, of any image of a cross, but particularly this one, because um, I don't know if you can see it from where you're seated throughout the sanctuary, but each of these squares that make up this cross uh, have this ghastly image and this very dark cloud of a reminder of what 
was involved in Jesus's giving his life on the cross. At the very top, uh, the square that is there, do you see that little arch that is above on that square? Um, If you looked at it a little closer, and you can come up after the service if you're not close enough to see this, but there are divisions across that arch. That is not an arch. That That is 30 pieces of silver, okay? Does that put that in context? And right underneath it, the little bag that might have been handed to Judas at that transaction, right at the very top of that cross. In the middle of the cross is the cup of suffering, the great cup of suffering that Jesus took on on our behalf. To the left, you see the lantern there. Can you imagine Judas coming in with the lantern, holding it up, pointing out, that's the man that I was referring to, and then kissing Jesus on the cheek, the lantern of betrayal. On the right-hand side, you may not have been able to make out ever before that that is the whipping post, the image of a whipping post to which Jesus might have been tied while he was flogged with a cat of nine tails as he was beat senseless, almost to the point of death right there, to the point where he couldn't even carry his cross up to the Calvary. Down just below the center, do you see that beautiful... uh, sparkle of glass that is there. Had you imagined before that that is actually the crown of thorns? This was expertly done, this cross as it was put together and forth down. You know what that one is, right? That was the rooster, a kitchen rooster? No, come on, you know the rooster, don't you? You know Peter's, you know Peter's hearing the rooster crow three times and he denied even though he said he would never do it, he denied having known his Lord. And then fifth down, just, just above the bottom, those three spikes that held Jesus to the cross. He wasn't roped up there. He was suffering the pain of those spikes in his wrists and in his ankles. And then at the very bottom, the ladder there that must have been used as a sponge filled with wine or vinegar was extended to Jesus, either to taunt him or to quench his thirst or to deaden his pain, I hope to deaden his pain, as he was dying there on the cross. I bet you'll never look at that cross the same way again It's not just this pretty stained glass for it tells a very horrific tale, a tale that Isaiah well knew even before Jesus would arrive on the scene. For Isaiah said, surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, Yet we, are accounted, we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed, or by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what is our iniquity? 
Our iniquity is that we don't know what to do with this kind of love. I ask you the question, just looking at this and thinking on it, can anything good come out of this? And that's not meant to be a rhetorical question. I'll ask that you answer it right now. Can anything good come out of this? You know this. This is exactly what the cross is about. Most certainly something good can come out of it. Our own salvation comes out of it. But even in a different way, I want to suggest to you that we are called not only to gaze upon Christ's suffering as our redemption, but to be able to look at our own suffering and to see the redemptive way in which God uses it for our salvation as well. I knew a woman who couldn't do that. I visited her in the hospital. She had cancer. Sue was working on the floor at the hospital and she said, I think that this lady might need a visit and I thought I can, I can do this. I'm a seminary student. I went to visit her. I had no idea what I was walking into. I offered my platitudes. I don't know if every seminary student is like that, but I had a lot to learn. I said to her, I said, Jesus understands your pain. Good gracious, if I could take that back. Oh. She bore holes through my chest with her stare. And she said to me, she said, even Jesus didn't have to suffer like I'm suffering. I didn't know what to say. I was out of my pay grade. And I quickly said a prayer and exited into the hallway, taking a deep breath and hoping that God wasn't looking. There was a missionary couple that I heard about that went to Africa. They carried with them their two-year-old son. And while they were there serving the Lord in Africa, the two-year-old contracted some terrible illness and he died. They brought this little son home in a casket. When the plane arrived at the airport, both sets of parents, grandparents to the child, were gathered to welcome this young couple back. And they stood there not knowing what to say. And in the wisdom of their young years, they spoke the words first, the missionary couple did, and simply said, God has entrusted to us this sorrow. What is it that you've gone through? I know some of your stories and I know some things that are in motion right now. What is it that you've gone through? What is it that you're going through? How is it that God is redeeming you? It's possible that we can resist it. I don't think that we can resist it forever. See, now that's another theological conversation that I'll get into you with. I believe that God's love will rule not only the day, but will rule eternity. But let's talk about you and me right now. 
how is it that God might use our suffering in order to lead us along a more redemptive path? Stephen Colbert, uh, if some of you stay up late at night, and I have to admit to you, I fall asleep about 10 o'clock. But if you know that name, you'll know that he's a late night show host and he is this, this wonderful comedian. He has always a political edge to what he's talking about. And Stephen Colbert uh, comes out of a very difficult situation. Um, he was sharing, uh, not on his show, but he was sharing that when he was a young boy, that he and his mother received the news that an airplane upon which his father and his brother were traveling had crashed and their lives were lost. He said it was devastating. But he said in the midst of this interview, he said, um, it's strange, um, it's strange, but I love the thing that I most wished had not happened. Now that is, that is a strange statement. Hear that again. Stephen Colbert said, I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. It's not the same thing as wanting it to have happened. But you can't change everything about the world. You certainly can't change things that have already happened. That's an interesting way in which to look at life. What he was trying to say, I think, was his life would not be what it is had that tragedy not occurred to make him process life in a different way. I was reading about Kate Bowler just recently. Um, she has written a book just recently in the past year and a half that is entitled Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I Have Loved. And in the midst of, in the midst of that, we think to ourselves, I know what she's talking about. Everything happens for a reason and other lives I have loved. She says that because she was diagnosed about four years ago, five years ago maybe, with stage four cancer and was not given long to live. And yet, she tells the story about her grief and her pain and also being sustained by the community and by God. When she heard it, she was crushed. When she went into the hospital, she was there even before she had, had changed into her hospital gown. She was sitting there, she's a teacher at Duke Divinity School. She was sitting there in this white dress with flowers all over it. And when a friend of hers came in, when Beth came in and was talking with her, she looked at Beth and she said, I want you to burn this dress. She said, this is not my life anymore. She looked at it and Beth just listened. After Beth had offered her platitudes and listened and was about to leave, Kate 
stepped into the restroom and she came out with her hospital gown on and holding that dress. She knew Beth would know what to do. She was devastated by her suffering. And some of you may have feel like that too, that you've had too much to bear. That one thing after another is a reminder to you of just how far you are away from God or God is away from you. I heard Elie Wiesel speak when I was in school. Elie Wiesel was this young 15-year-old who was carried off to Auschwitz in Germany. When he was arrested and carried there to a concentration camp, he said that he remembered seeing ghastly scenes. One in particular he recorded in his little book called Night. He said that when they came back from their work detail, there were three gallows that were set up. And it was often the case that there were gallows set up at Auschwitz to put people to death. But here on this particular day, there were three people that were lined up, one of which was a child. Oh, if you can imagine. And finally, when the act was done, they were standing there and someone asked the question, where is the merciful God? Where is the merciful God? And Elie Wiesel said within him, he heard this voice speak so clearly on the gallows, on the gallows. Where is it that you experience God? Are you so intent on looking for his comfort, on the consolation of what it would mean to be free of suffering, that you cannot acknowledge that God is with you in your suffering, that there is no one that understands better, that feels the sense of what that pain might be than Jesus himself. It is our affliction that we would search for a God of divine comfort and miss the fact that Christ leads us through our suffering by being with us in our suffering. There's a very precious prayer that I learned years ago. It's by a Jesuit priest. His name is William J. O'Malley. That that prayer goes like this. God, my friend, this day is yours. I offer you my acceptance of everything, whether you bring suffering, joy, toil, or trouble. Do you live that kind of life? Are you willing to offer even your suffering in order to see God at work in your life and in the world. Two more quick things I want to mention and then we'll conclude. One is that this plot for Jesus wasn't the end of the story. In fact, it wasn't the satisfying of those that were in Jerusalem. If you turn one page over in your Bible, you'll see an interesting thing When the great crowd of Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death 
as well. How do you kill a dead man? I don't know. One that has come back to life can never be killed again. Not really. And this was Jesus' whole point. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This cross is a reminder that God is with us in our suffering. If you think to yourself, I don't really understand this message, give it some time. Maybe you are like I was when I was a student trying to learn what it meant to be a preacher. I don't think I had suffered enough and I still haven't suffered as much as some of you have suffered. God is to be found right where we are because he loves us, every single one of us. I bet you'll never look at this cross the same way again. I hope that would be the case. It's not just something pretty. It is something absolutely profound.